0: Join the conversation in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. And uh, you're very welcome back. Lots of people on to us to say congratulations on the Imro Awards for Emma and uh, myself on uh, Friday night. And you're very kind to do that. And thank you very much. And it's all appreciated. Um, uh, Teresa was on. Uh, I beg your pardon, Uh, Fran, Teresa is right. You should be able to protect yourself and your property in your own home. Uh, There should be no legal aid for people who are found guilty. If somebody breaks down your door, um, their property should be sold to compensate the victim. Their social welfare should be reduced to pay the cost of damages. If they work, money should be taken out of their wages. Hit them in their pocket where it hurts. Uh, In general, people work hard to own things and some scumbag uh, thinking they have nothing to do but come and take it from them. And now it's our weekly feature on the programme. Tip Today goes global. And as always, delighted to be joined by Tipperary man, Thomas Conway, who is a student of economics and politics. Uh, Good morning to you, Thomas. Good morning, Fran.
1: Congratulations as well. I'll extend my own congratulations. Uh, You're
0: Very, very kind indeed. Thanks. We were delighted with it. You're going to start with with China for us today.
1: Yeah. So this is, I think, the main story this week. There's a lot of anticipation uh, building across the globe, really, the Communist Party Congress is taking place. It kicks off next week. And what that is is essentially it, it takes place every 5 years. Uh it's a meeting of I suppose the elite of the Communist Party. So, you know, a vast party, more than 96 million members, the second largest on the planet. And it is an event in which I think the the senior the senior figures within the Communist Party are reshuffled around the various positions of power. So, really, it's an event for the hierarchy. Right. But this particular Congress is all about Xi Jinping, the Chinese right. president.
0: Tell us a little more about about him, then.
1: Yeah, he is fascinating, really. He's, some would argue, the most powerful man on earth. I think he's a, a very mysterious, enigmatic figure as well. He's expected to rule for life. He's effect- A couple of years mm. ago, he abolished term limits. So, Chinese presidents would usually serve a... A five-year term maybe two two five-year terms she abolished that back in 2017 uh, which effectively gives him free reign to to rule for as long as he likes and i think that's what most people anticipate he's 69 now but he's showing no signs of stopping and as i mentioned he's a very mysterious figure has a fascinating backstory. Yeah, tell us about
0: the backstory
1: because, I mean, you
0: know, with what happened to his dad and stuff, you wouldn't imagine he would have gotten to where he is. But will you tell us about that backstory?
1: Yeah, so born in Beijing in 1953, known what the Chinese call a princeling. So he was the son of one of the founding fathers of the Communist Party yes. and therefore kind of destined for greatness, destined for political greatness, if you like. But his life took a very sharp turn in the nineteen sixties and the nineteen seventies under the leadership of Mao Zedong, Mao's infamous cultural revolution. And just to remind people, that, that was the time when Mao effectively purged half of the country, those who whom he deemed not to be loyal enough to the Communist Party or to his own ideology. And Xi's father was one of the ones who suffered. He was banished, uh, he was tortured. I think she's half sister eventually ended up dying by suicide as a result of the trauma of all that and she himself was sent to this rural place in the countryside where apparently he lived in a cave he spent 7 years working and learning the virtues of hard work how did he emerge from that to where he is now Yeah so you would expect following that that I mean it would be very reasonable if he reasonable if he decided to turn his back completely on China and the communist party but he actually went the other way, which is intriguing. He tried several times to join the party, was eventually allowed in in 1974. And I suppose after Mao's death in 1976, there was kind of a sea change in Chinese politics and China as a country. It fell under the leadership of Deng Xiaoping, who opened it up economically to the world, brought in investment, and the Chinese economy exploded. There was dramatic economic growth, growth, Dramatic population growth and the country kind of emerged and and eventually got to where it is today, uh, a a geopolitical superpower. So all this time Xi would have been building his reputation within the party, Uh, he held numerous kind of senior roles, he was the party chief in Shanghai and eventually in 2012 he was appointed as the successor to Hu Jintao uh, as the chairman of the Communist Party and the president of China... And a lot of people thought at that time he was the man for the job because of his sheer devotion to the Communist Party. A lot of people felt the party had maybe lost its way in the preceding mm. years, that the rules had become a bit lax, that yes. the Chinese population weren't as committed. But she was this kind of ultra-driven uh, party ideologue, if you like. His mission to kind of restore China's image on the global stage restore China to greatness. And I suppose you could argue to a certain extent he's achieved that, in that, as I mentioned, China is now a geopolitical superpower.
0: Yes, even though they are going through their own economic issues at the moment. They
1: certainly are. They certainly are. They've had a tired couple of years, you know, and his zero-COVID policy, which he's still pursuing kind of fervently over there, his zero-COVID policy has wreaked havoc on the Chinese economy and the global economy more broadly. What about the
0: relationship with Russia then? Because that is worth a mention, isn't it?
1: It is worth a mention. And I think we we touched on it last week. I think Xi Jinping, anyway, sees Russia as indispensable. But, um, you know, he's willing to sacrifice it. You know, there have been various lines of argument that Russia is just a petrol station for China. Mm. I think Xi himself will use russia as effectively as he can for china's own purposes funny enough i don't think he's as interested in the war in ukraine uh, in terms of what actually happens to ukraine i think he's he's interested in the implications for the west will it eventually divide the west which is i suppose his uh you know his ambition or yes. his conviction because at the heart of this i mean there are two competing philosophies here in the West, we have obviously liberal democracy where people have freedom of expression, freedom of thought. In China, it's it's very different. Now, I haven't been, but I mean, anything I've read suggests that in China, you kind of sacrifice a lot of those individual liberties for the party, for the good of the country. And that is the vision that Xi Jinping holds for, for his country.
0: You uh, also spoke about the fact that, you know, there's so much of it shrouded in, in mystery and secrecy and all of that. And partic- particularly the pol- the Politburo. Yeah, the Politburo... That's a very small organi- uh, aspect
1: of... Yeah, the Politburo Standing Committee is a seven-member committee, which is essentially the highest-ranking body in the Communist Party. So yes. I suppose you could compare it here... To, to the government, to the inner cabinet, if you like. People often talk about the cabinet and then you have the inner cabinet which would be, I suppose, the Taoiseach the, Tanish, uh, the Minister for Foreign Affairs the Minister for Finance, maybe yes. uh, and the Minister for Public Expenditure it, The Politburo Standing Committee is probably similar to that. So you have kind of party elders on it which dictate uh, party policy and dictate where the party is going. Interestingly, in this instant, there is no real successor emerging to Xi Jinping within that committee, which I think is probably orchestrated. Uh, orchestrated, yes, yes. I, I would certainly think you, so. You
0: speak about party elders, but there's a cutoff off point uh, of, is it
1: 68? Yeah, I found this intriguing as well. I, there's kind of a hint of ageism to it. Yeah, party or party figures are expected to retire at 68. Now, she himself, the rule apparently 69. doesn't apply to him. He's 69 and and intends to yeah. keep going for as long as he L- likes. Lots of
0: women in that Politburo. Well, yeah, that, that is another
1: problem, if you <laughs> yeah. were being very critical. There are very few women. I've read of maybe one or two emerging through the ranks and maybe they will come in time. But But there is definitely a lack of of kind of older figures and a lack of women within the highest echelons of the party. But there is no doubt overall, Xi has kind of has kind of revived the Communist Party right down to the neighborhood level, to grassroots level. There are anecdotes of uh party committees at local level enforcing COVID policies, enforcing lockdown rules, and that. Yes. There are there are lots of stories uh like that. And I think that has been his mission to kind of restore the Communist Party at the heart of China.
0: Very interesting. Any, what's the most recent talk in Taiwan after uh, Nancy Pelosi's... Uh...
1: Yeah, I, I think China are a little bit cautious in relation to... It. America has said it will defend Taiwan militarily. Yeah. It, it, it has put, Joe Biden has put that line out there and I think that has prompted a little bit of caution on the part of Chinese. Now, it's still a stated goal of the Chinese government and the Communist Party to, to to rule Taiwan and, and to render it part of China. But I think it's kind of holding its cannon fodder for, for the time being.
0: For another day. All right, let us move uh, to sub-Saharan Africa and to a country that I hadn't heard of before. Will you tell us about this?
1: Yeah, Burkina Faso. So, uh, relatively, well, I suppose a relatively small part of it, it still has a, a population of around 21 million. But it is a poor country and it has been afflicted by both terrorism and poverty. And last week, it witnessed or experienced a second coup d'etat in less than a year. Uh, You know, coup d'etat is increasingly common across regions of Africa. Political stability, very common. In this instance, a man called Ibrahim Traore snatched power uh, from his predecessor, uh, who was Lieutenant Colonel Paul Henry San Diego D'Amiba who himself had swept to power in January of this year So a coup on top of a coup A coup on top of a coup Now the reason for this one was motivated by the growing Islamist threat in the country So we've mentioned previously on the programme how a lot of Islamic militant organisations affiliates of Al-Qaeda and Islamic states are growing in influence across Mm. the region They're operating rightly they're perpetrating some devastating atrocities on the local population so
0: are they opportunistic in terms of like if there's volatility yeah. and uh, they they'll move in there? Uh, that...
1: that seems to be the case yeah. i think they they sense the kind of weakness of the political institutions yes. they sense, sense the weakness of the political system and they see that as an opportunity to exploit and and that seems to be exactly what they've done in the case of Bur- burkina mm. faso and you know you can see why there would be an opportunity there. As I mentioned, population of just over 21 million people was looking at some stats from the World Bank. Outward migration, staggeringly high, people flocking out of the country. The average life expectancy is just 62 years of age. And only 19% of inhabitants have access to proper electricity. So that oh is God. incredibly low.
0: We were chatting about uh, Russia. Do they look to Moscow in some way?
1: Yeah. Uh, and this is another worrying element of, of this particular uh, crisis. People might be familiar with the Wagner Group or the Wagner Group. Yeah. They're a group of mer- Russian mercenaries. They're operating in Ukraine, known for their brutality, uh, for their brutal methods. And they also have influence across sub-Saharan Africa. And it looks as if Burkina Faso is actually turning to this group to offset the, te- the threat caused by Islamic militants. So that is very interesting in that they're not turning to the West. Burkina Faso was a former colony of France and traditionally it would have looked to France to address its security concerns. Mm. Not in this case. It seems to be pivoting towards Russia. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. Russia has, I suppose, launched a campaign of influence across Africa uh, to kind of, to woo many of the states there. And I think this probably preceded the war in Ukraine, but there's no doubt it's looking to Mm. build kind of a coalition. And us in the West, should we be
0: concerned about
1: this? I think it has to be a, a, a source of concern because, I mean, you know, with Russia intensifying operations there, China is well known as well. Uh, to have growing influence in Africa. It has invested huge amount. A lot of countries are now wedded to China with massive sums of debt because China has, has granted it loans and bonds and stuff like that. And I think it has to be a source of concern for for the West. I think it's definitely something that has to be looked at.
0: All right, OK. Well, Burkina Faso, I will keep it on my, my radar going forward. Danish politics, and as you say, you couldn't make this one up,
1: could No, you? No, you couldn't make this up. It's, now, initially, I read this story and I kind of started to smirk. When I read into it a little bit more, it was actually kind of distressing. So last week, Danish Prime Minister, Prime Minister Meta Friedrichsen, who's one of the many female leaders up in Scandinavia, she was forced to call a snap general election. And the reason is very interesting. It was triggered following kind of an almost farcical controversy relating to the botched cull of 17 million mink, uh, the mink population in the country during the pandemic. It was related to COVID-19, contamination fears. I think there was a, a dangerous COVID variant identified in a number of mink farms in the north of the country, and the government clearly made a, a snap decision, probably a rash decision, uh, to cull mm. the entire mink population, not just the ones that were infected. Right.
0: And why why is mink so important to to, to farmers
1: there? Well, there is, there is a massive industry there. And I mean, there were, I was reading back and looking at a couple of videos, there were videos of mink farmers coming on television, distraught in tears, distraught at the loss of their livelihoods. Um, and worried as to what they would do next. So it caused, it erupted into a major scandal at the time. And the scandal has kind of come back to bite the Danish Prime Minister, Metter Friedrichsen, more recently. uh, I think there was an inquiry into events and it resulted in, in one of her coalition parties effectively withdrawing support, thus forcing her to call a snap general election. Now, the results of this election are, at, at present, too close to call. We don't know which way it's going to slant, but there's an interesting tradition in Denmark in that there have been a lot of minority governments in recent years, but there's also a lot of cross-party collaboration mm. in the Danish parliament, the Folketing. So, like a lot of Scandinavian countries, they seem to have it right in terms of politics. They seem yes. to be able to work together. And is there a
0: rise of the right there? Like, yeah, like...
1: familiarly enough, I mean, we heard it in Sweden, the Sweden Democrats. Yeah. We've seen it in Italy now more recently. The Danish People's Party are a right-wing grouping in Denmark and they seem to be increasingly influential. If a right-wing coalition does emerge from this, from this general election, it's likely that the Danish People's Party will either be part of it or they will be lending support in the form of a, minor- a minority government. So remind
0: us as well about the monarchy there, because uh, yeah. I suppose it's similar to the UK situation, is it?
1: Similar, a little bit similar to the UK yeah. situation. Probably not as uh, as known uh, on a global stage yeah. or, a, yeah. or or like that. But the monarch, uh, Queen Margaret the Second, is in charge. She is the symbolic head of state. Now, she's not immune to controversy. You know, I had to smile. Recently enough, She she's tried to slim down the royal family. So she decided to take a number of royal titles from uh, her grandchildren. And of course, it provoked effectively a family feud. Uh, the grandchildren were furious. And I think it's one that you know, I was about to say Prince Charles, King Charles III will be watching carefully because, I mean, that is his vision of the monarchy. He does... To slim it down. To slim it down, Ooh. to slim it down. And you can see how that would work. But obviously, you know, that, that is a move which can precipitate controversy as well.
0: Isn't it interesting? We were speaking there about uh, Burkina uh, Faso. It's, it's, it's amazing. Uh, somebody say, I worked in Burkina Faso wow. for a year. I was there in January when the coup first happened.
1: Wow, wow, amazing? yeah, isn't that it? is amazing.
0: And somebody else, you won't believe this one, they were out on Saturday night in Tipperary Town and they met somebody from Burkina Faso and he was a, a decent old skin, it says.
1: Well, <laughs> I'm sure they are, I'm sure they are, yeah, I, I, and I'm sure isn't that, that...
0: amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Indeed. We're, we're all so global now, it's fantastic. What should we be watching out for, do you think, over I mean, the coming week?
1: Yeah, a couple of quick stories. I decided to feature this first one. You've probably never heard of this person, uh, but she's about to become perhaps one of the most influential figures in the European Union. Her name is Très Blanchet, and she's emerged as the leading candidate to become the Secretary-General of the European Council. Now, what is that? It's effectively the top diplomatic role within the European Union. So you often hear stories about these Brussels bureaucrats. Nobody knows who they are, anonymous faces who wield an awful lot of power she could be considered one of them she she will if she gets the job of course she will sit in on on european leaders' meetings uh, she will have a lot of sway in terms of policy matters there has been no timeline issued but there uh, the council have been without a secretary general since last march so it's it's expected that she or another candidate will be appointed quite soon. So just a name, just to keep in the back of your mind, Thérèse Blanchett, It's not all about Macron and Schultz and yes. you know a, a, and the rest of them and me Hall. You know, the diplomats have an awful lot of influence, particularly at EU level. It'd be Very
0: interesting to see. What is the story with Elon Musk at this point? Is he buying Twitter or isn't he buying
1: it? I don't Twitter? know. What's, Has what's he up? made his mind up at yeah. all? I, I think it looks like this at this stage, like he is likely to buy it. I think Twitter and him are in negotiations. He, he initially seemed very enthusiastic. Then he withdrew his bid. There was a controversy earlier in the year yeah. over the terms. He looks to have come back into the fold now and I think there are ongoing negotiations on, I suppose, the final complexion of the deal. And if he does take it over, there is one big question and and listeners will already know this. Does he reinstate Donald Trump to the platform and what implications would that have uh, for the presidency for the presidency and for well, your, it w- U.S. It would politics. Be huge. I yeah, think it would be it? huge. It would yeah. supercharge his presidency. Uh, Democrats in Washington are very worried about it. I've even heard some Republicans are are quite worried. They're fearful that maybe Trump's reckless tweets could could damage some of their own candidates. But. I think from his perspective, it could only do him good.
0: Oh, it's going to be very interesting, indeed. And finally, elections in uh, Bulgaria.
1: Yeah, we had an election in Bulgaria last week, the fourth election in 18 months, no less, which is kind of astonishing. Uh, but it looks like a right-wing coalition led by former Prime Minister Boyko Borisov is set to sweep the power, to take the reins of power. He's going to displace the outgoing Prime Minister, Kirill Petkov. There are questions looming over kind of Bulgarian society. There's a there's a strong current of kind of pro-Kremlin sentiment there. Yeah. It didn't quite come true within the elections. There were a couple of minor parties who did with a pro-Kremlin line who did relatively well. But I think the main story here is the level of political instability in the country. As I said, four four elections in 18 months, that is never a good sign. So, I mean, what Bulgaria has to do now is try and gain a bit of stability at governmental level, because, you know, all this change is never good and it often sows division within kind of the body mm. politic.
0: And are you making the point that that might be useful for pro-Russian? Pro- yeah, well, I
1: think so. Yeah. As we as we alluded to yeah. Russia, you know, and its activities in, in Africa, it's not limited to Africa. Any country where there's instability, we saw it intervened in the US elections to try and create instability there. Any volatility, any instability they will capitalise on. So I think it's it's important for, for Bulgaria to kind of uh, gain a bit of stability at governmental level.
0: Alright. Thomas, it's always good to talk to you and always most interesting. Thanks very much. Thank you, Frank. For dropping into us again. That's uh, Thomas Conway and that's our tip today goes global slot. News and information's on the way.